Since Elder Alders has already read the passage uh, that is our sermon text today, I'm just going to reiterate uh, verses 22 to 25. So hear now the word of God again. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. These are the words of God and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you're able to take the time to read through the letter of uh, Hebrews, like I suggested earlier this week in an email. Um, if you did, you, I'm sure you noticed and were perhaps struck again by the um, identification of this as a brief exhortation from the author himself. And uh, so if that's the way we define brief, then I promise you, you will get a brief sermon this morning. I'm kind of kidding. So let's situate the text just a little bit. The letter to the Hebrews is a carefully crafted and sustained argument. And it's expressed in the form of a rhetorically sophisticated homily. It's a, uh, a sermonic exhortation, if you will, that is meant to both warn and edify a weary group of Christians who apparently are in danger of losing heart in the presence of trials and losing faith in the promises of God in Christ. They are a suffering people, deeply in need of assurance. And that's exactly what this letter provides them, and by extension, us. In Hebrews, we see a soaring vision of God's kingdom, containing a brilliant blend of high Christology, coupled with insightful moral instruction and calls to perseverance under the threat of persecution and social pressure. Our text today is the rhetorical high point of the letter's argument, the great contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And so it's essential in understanding what the author is doing in this contrast that we first recognize and remember and understand that the giving of the law at Mount Sinai was an awesome physical display as depicted in Exodus 19, 20, and Deuteronomy 4. The prelude to the divine fireworks at Sinai involved the people's consecration as directed by God. They washed their clothing. They abstained from sexual relations so as to be ceremonially clean. They also observed God's orders that no man or beast touch the mountain on pain of death by stoning or arrows. The stage remained set for three days at Sinai. Then on the morning of the third day, which is a peculiarly familiar time frame for us who read the Bible, the people saw a thick cloud cover the top of Sinai, illumined by gold veins of lightning with accompanying thunder, rolling down the slopes, plus a deafening trumpet blast that reduced everyone to trembling. Hundreds of thousands of angels hovered invisibly around and over Sinai, and some perhaps were blowing celestial horns. Whatever the case, Moses led his people from their tents to the foot of the mountain, and this is what they saw from Exodus 19, 18, and 19. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, 
and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Imagine what it must have been like to be there. The ground is unsteady under your feet due to perpetual seismic tremors. The sky is black in deep darkness except for the radiating forks of lightning in the gloom and the fire blazing atop from Sinai. Celestial shofars blare louder and louder in their primal moans. Moses speaks and God himself answers with a voice like thunder. The people were visibly and physically assaulted with the holiness and majesty of God at Sinai. This palpable divine display on Sinai communicated far more than any speech or written word could ever do. And all Israel, young and old, could understand the holiness of God. In addition to providing a glimpse of God's holiness, the blazing fire atop Sinai emphasized that his holiness rendered him a judge, a consuming fire, we are told in Deuteronomy 4 and also in our text today. The effect of these physical signs was to display in no uncertain terms the absolute unapproachableness of God. The mountain was so charged with the holiness of God that for a man to touch it meant certain death. Even if an innocent animal wandered to the mountain, it would contract so much holiness in itself that it became deadly to the touch of a human and had to be killed from a distance by a stone or an arrow. The effects upon those at the foot of Sinai was substantial. It instilled a proper fear of God, something we should note is woefully missing among Christian culture today. As Moses explained, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. This was an act of grace. It was without doubt a remedial lesson for the Israelites. To understand that God is holy and that one is a sinner is to stand at the very threshold of the message of grace. Moreover, the giving of the Ten Commandments in this awesome context and Israel's failure to keep them served to emphasize the people's impotence and doom, which in fact is a further grace to them, however negative the experience may be. But this said, the great problem with the trip to Sinai was that while men and women could come to see God's holiness and their sinfulness, which was grace, the law provided no power in itself to overcome sin. Understanding this, the writer's explanation that they have come to a better mountain than Sinai makes sense. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, he says. Zion, to which they had come, is a spiritual mountain, whereas Sinai was a physical mountain that could be touched only at pain of death. In effect, the author of Hebrews is admonishing his people as they attempt to run with perseverance the race that is marked out before him, before them, not to listen to the voices of their old friends who are still immersed in the, in the futile pursuit of attempting to live up to the Sinai laws, but rather to do everything in their power to maintain a straight path to Zion's grace. So from Mount Sinai, we now switch in the text to Mount Zion 
And the sublimest description anywhere, perhaps in Scripture, of what we have come to under grace. It is a lyrical text. It sings. And it has the feel, really, of an early confession regarding the church. Some have surmised that perhaps this little Hebrew congregation sang or chanted its words in the months that followed as it attempted to run the race amidst the ensuing Neronian persecution in Rome. In any case, there are seven sublime truths that this passage outlines for us, and I want to take the time to enumerate them. First, we come to Zion, and so we come to the city of God. But you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Verse 22. Mount Zion, geographically, historically, was the location of the Jebusite stronghold that David captured and made the religious center of his kingdom by bringing to it the golden ark of God, that instrument of God's presence with his people. When Solomon built the temple and installed the ark, Zion, or Jerusalem, became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God. It was that axis between heaven and earth, much like the Garden of Eden. In Christ, we have come to its heavenly counterpart, says the author of Hebrews, the spiritual Jerusalem from above. So in one sense, this is something still to come. Hebrews 13, 14 says, but we are looking for the city that is to come. But yet, in another sense, we have already arrived there. Christians are now citizens of the heavenly city and enjoy its privileges. Paul wrote in uh, Philippians 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Zion by virtue of our incorporation in Christ For, as Ephesians 2 tells us, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Sure, the fiery presence is still there, but we do now have the requisite holiness and access because of Christ. And what is more, we are in Zion permanently. But you have come to Mount Zion. This is in the verbal perfect tense emphasizing our permanent and continuing state in Zion. We are in Zion now, and we are marching toward Zion at the same time. Secondly, as the church, we worship with angels. Second half of verse 22, you have come to an innumerable company of angels in Zion. Moses tells us that myriads of holy ones attended the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 33. And from Daniel, we hear that thousands upon thousands attended him. That is the ancient of days. Ten thousand, ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. Daniel 7.10. David said, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. Psalm 68.17. That's a lot of thousands. In the church, we come to this dizzying thousands of angels in glorious assembly before the throne of God in Zion. But the grand emphasis of our passage is not so much the angels' care of us, okay? We're not so much talking about our guardian angels, but rather it's our joining them in this festal assembly of vibrant worship. 
The word translated general assembly was actually used in ancient uh, Greece to describe the great national assemblies and the sacred games that were held, all of them having religious contexts. Whereas at Mount Sinai, the angels blew celestial trumpets that terrified God's people, we are to see ourselves, according to this text, on Mount Zion as dressed in the festal attire and worshiping in awe side by side with these shining ones. And here we are today. Was this your vision of how you would worship today in this assembly of saints? Dear Christian, we need so desperately to capture the biblical vision of worship given to us here. We need to raise our expectations of what God has done and is doing right now and in our midst. We need to live and love and serve and work as if this were actually true. Thirdly, on Mount Zion we come to the company of all the saints, the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. First part of uh, verse 23 there. Jesus is the firstborn par excellence. And by virtue of our union with him, we are firstborn. All the rights of inheritance go to the firstborn. To us who are co-heirs with Christ, as Paul reminds us in Romans 8. But wait, there is more. As firstborn, our names are also written in heaven along with the firstborn who are already there. In other words, there is an amazing solidarity between, between the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant here on earth. It simply keeps growing and going on and on. We are the body of Christ with them, with all the saints that have come before. Remember at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 and back into 11 with this cloud of witnesses. That's in context here. A bulging assembly of rich first sons and daughters who get it all. That's you and me. Fourthly, we come to God. You have come to God, verse 23, uh, second part of verse 23. You have come to God, the judge of all. Although the scene in Zion to which we came, uh, to which we come is a joyous festival, it is also not a casual thing. We come to Zion to meet the God of Sinai, who is judge of all. As the author of Hebrews reminds his readers earlier in the letter, we understand regarding God that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13. We also know that he said, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.30 and 31. Knowing this, we come before him in awe because he is the judge. But we do not come in paralyzing dread like those at Sinai because his son has borne the judgment for us. This is our highest delight. To gather before God a redeemed people. It is a miracle of grace and an exquisite display of a loving God. Fifthly, we come to the church triumphant, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And as we have noted already, though they are in heaven, we share a solidarity with those who have gone before us. 
We share the same secrets as Abraham and Moses and David and Paul. Here is an amazing thing. They died millennia before us, but God planned, according to Hebrews 11.40, quote, that only together with us would they be made perfect, end quote. They waited for centuries for the perfection we received when we trusted in Christ because that came only with Christ's death. The author of Hebrews goes on, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10.14 So because of Christ's work, we are not one uh, one with uh, inferior to the patriarchs. We are not inferior to the patriarchs. For through Christ, we are all equal in righteousness with them. This is really a stunning truth. Sixthly, we come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Verse 24. Significantly, Christ's human name, Jesus, not his title, is used here because we have come to the man like us and the man who was made for us. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, but as great as he was, he, like the others, trembled fearfully at Mount Sinai. But through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, we draw near with confidence. The promises of the new covenant are sure, for they are in Jesus, the God-man. He is the source and dispenser of everything for which we hope. He is in us, and we are in him. And finally, seven, we come to forgiveness because of sprinkled blood and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's warm blood cried from the ground for vengeance and judgment. But Christ's blood shouts that we are forgiven and we have peace with God. Hallelujah. Oh, the eloquence of Jesus' blood. It says that what was impossible for us is now not only possible in Christ, but has already happened. It says that you and I are forgiven and redeemed. Thanks be to God. So the scriptures here tell us that the church, that in the church, we have come right now to these seven sublimities, to the city of God, to the myriad of angels, to the assembly of fellow saints, to God himself, to the church triumphant, to Jesus, the God-man, to forgiveness and redemption. This is our story. So to put it bluntly, as an old-timer said, if this, uh, if this doesn't turn you on, then you ain't got no switch. <clears throat> if this does not create a wellspring of thanksgiving in our hearts and make us want to march to Zion together, hand in hand, heads lifted high, then what in the world will? The difficulty for us is not due to a lack of understanding. These have been revealed to us and to our children. Rather, it is a lack in our commitment to live these truths out, to bring them to bear on our perspective and our activity. Will we do it? Will we obey? Before we get into the warning, I want to uh, take a, uh, just a brief excursus here and talk about a, a danger that is involved when we uh, begin to compare Sinai and Zion and the theology of these two mountains. 
We must be aware of this and be on guard against it. I want to I want to address the danger and give maybe just a brief pastoral warning. Um, the tension between the biblical notions of law and grace is one with which any serious biblical Christian must wrestle carefully with. Because the nature of their relationship is not intuitive to us. In fact, in reading the New Testament, we see clearly how the earliest Christians themselves wrestled with this very tension. And we have an apostolic teaching on how to navigate it. But it does not come easy. Careful and prayerful thought and study is necessary. The danger is that we can devolve into a sort of truncated theology that treats law and grace as binary notions inconsistent with one another. Following the apostolic era, one of the first heresies that the church faced centered on this very issue. Marcion, a wealthy shipowner from Sinope, which is now in modern-day northern Turkey, he came to hold ecclesiastical influence in Rome, and then about 138 A.D., he began to argue that the Hebrew Bible was inferior to the New Testament and had no part to play in authoritative revelation. He therefore fought to have it removed from the Christian canon. Though he was excommunicated early on, his destructive teaching lingered for nearly two centuries in the early church. Marcion taught the total incompatibility of Old and New Testaments. He believed there was a radical discontinuity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, between the Creator God and Father of Jesus. So Marcion created a new Bible for his followers, as heretics are apt to do, that dismissed with the Old Testament and a severely hacked up New Testament that consisted only of one gospel uh, that he saw as the least Jewish, uh, an edited version of Luke, um, and ten select and edited Pauline epistles, excluding the pastoral epistles. That uh, Our Sunday school lesson was over this morning. His views were spelled out in his book Antitheses, pretty good title for a, a book like that, which set forth the alleged contradictions between the Testaments. Tertullian, in his famous work Against Marcion, wrote a five-volume refutation of this. Justin Martyr, another early Christian apologist, who himself, interestingly, took an unbalanced anti-Judaic stance, even Justin considered Marcionism to be the most dangerous heresy of his day. Recognizing this, the church in Rome condemned Marcion in 144 A.D. Very quickly, in church. that's a very quick condemnation in church history. <clears throat> but Marcion, Marcionism never completely died out. <clears throat> and in the 19th century, especially with the rise of theological liberalism, it underwent a revival among those who wished to separate what they considered to be the crude and primitive parts of the Old Testament from the New. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Likewise, there are many in the church today who have rejected the Old Testament either formally or at least practically. I want to submit to you this morning that the ghost of Marcion still haunts the Christian church today. Certainly one of the greatest tragedies in church history is the early adoption of the highly unfortunate terms old and new to refer to the two tes testaments of Christian scripture. 
This distinction already assumes and connotes the kind of disparity that Marcion argued for. I think a term like first or and last, uh, those two designations would be a much better way for us to talk about the Testaments. Neo-Marcionism is subtly alive and well in the evangelical church today. Of course, it is true that the New Testament gives us a fuller revelation of God. So do not hear what I'm not saying. And that we no longer live under the strictures of the old covenant economy. However, the God we worship is still the same God. But sadly, many Christians and churches today are so biblically and theologically anemic especially with regard to the Old Testament, which constitutes roughly three-quarters of the literature in the Bible, that they have adopted a tragically sentimentalized idea of God, one which amounts to little more than a deity who died to meet their felt needs and nothing more. The sin question and the requirement of radical holiness is frequently minimized or downright ignored. The result is the incredible paradox of evangelicals who claim to know Jesus but who do not know who God is or what he requires of them. To whatever degree we fall prey to such an erroneous view, we have effectively become unwitting Marcionites. Unless we point the finger too hastily at those Christians out there, we should take a careful stock of our own beliefs and practices to see if we might be unknowingly influenced by the specter of Marcion ourselves. I know I have been. This remains a serious threat to the modern church. We must be vigilant, on guard. We must study, preach, and teach the whole counsel of God. We must nourish ourselves and our children in the Hebraic heritage of Christian theology. Ours is a roots and fruits theology, not a nuke and pave theology. We must not abandon robust and comprehensive catechesis in our church and home that covers the entirety of the biblical witness. At root, this is the remedy for this travesty, the Bible itself, specifically its revelation of God at Sinai in the Old Covenant and Zion in the New Covenant, each of which presents a vision or an aesthetic for understanding who God really is, and what our proper response to him should be. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums it up in question three. What do the scriptures principally teach? You can answer with me. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And so now we enter into this warning that the author of Hebrews gives after this majestic picture of what we have come to in Christ. We have come to the heavenly city, to Mount Zion. He has a warning. From Mount Zion we learn in Moses' words that God is a consuming fire. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24. The vision is stupendous, a mountaintop blazing with fire to the very heavens, cloaked with a deep darkness, lightning illuminating golden arteries in the clouds, celestial rams, uh, ram's horns overlaying the thunder with these mournful blasts, the ground shaking as God's voice intones the Ten Commandments to his covenant people. 
God is transcendently, transcendentally other than us. Perfectly good and holy. And he radiates wrath and judgment against sin by his very nature. God cannot be approached. This is the vision for the heart of every believer. The Lord your God is a consuming fire. It is the corrective so needed in today's church that has shamefully trivialized worship, turning itself into a self-assured, farcical variety show of sorts. A picture is worth a thousand words, we like to say. And as such, Mount Sinai, a mountain on fire and billowing smoke to the heavens, shows us who God is still, not who he was back then. Of course, we have the other mountain, Mount Zion of the New Testament. And this completes the picture. There we see God's love as God's Son takes all of his people's transgressions on himself so that he, uh, as Second Corinthians 5 tells us, he became sin. There on the cross we see God the Son dying for our sins and extending forgiveness to all who will believe in him, trusting his work alone for salvation. What a vision we are bequeathed from yet another mountain. Mount Calvary. God with his arms nailed wide as if to embrace all those who come to him in faith. His blood covering the earth, speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. The consuming love of God. Mount Zion, crowned by Golgotha, shows us who God really is. God is the God of Mount Sinai and of Mount Zion. Both mountains reveal the true God to us. Neither can be separated from the other. Either mountain loses its significance without reference to the other. Both visions must be held in blessed tension within our souls and in our minds. There's consuming fire and a consuming love. This will save us from the damning delusion of Marcion. And so what shall we do because of this? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us obedience and worship. We ought to obey because God's word is unstoppably effectual. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? This is what we call in logic and a fortiori, or to the stronger argument. An argument that argues that what is true in the lesser case will be even more true in the greater case. And if you read through the letter to the Hebrews, you see he employs this many, many times, uh, this to the stronger. In the lesser case, God's earthly warning at Sinai first, first uh, suffered subtle refusal by the Israelites when they begged that no further word be spoken to them, Exodus twenty nineteen. Though their refusal there at Sinai was more from fear than from outright rejection of God. However, in the years that followed, they explicitly refused God's word by repeated disobedience, you know the story, during the four decades of wandering in the wilderness. So grievous was their disobedience that in Numbers fourteen twenty nine. It records that God pronounced judgment in that everyone who was 20 years of, uh, of age and older would die in the desert. And indeed, none did escape except for the faithful Caleb and Joshua. 
So considering the inexorable penalty for disobeying God's earthly message, how much greater will the penalty be in the greater instance of disobeying this heavenly message of grace through his son? Surely no one will escape that judgment. This, of course, has been the writer's message all along. In Hebrews 2, 3, he warned, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Later in Hebrews 10, 28 and 29, he said much the same thing, emphasizing the greater punishment. He says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. In fact, these warnings implicitly recapitulate the thesis that's laid out in the very first sentence of this letter. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The warning is crystal clear. We had better obey the spoken word of God because his threat that no one who disobeys will escape is effectual. It's a done deal. No person will escape who refuses the gospel of grace made manifest in God's word. Jesus Christ. Because God is a consuming fire. And then he offers a final word. So if this is not, if, the, if all of that is not sufficient reason to obey the God of these two mountains, there is yet another pointing to the finality of God's word. As the writer goes on to explain, he says, His voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. The initial historical event where God, God's voice shook the earth was Mount Sinai when he verbally spelled out, the Ten Commandments with a thunderous voice. Imagine how terrifying it was to have the ground under your feet shaking at the audible sound of the thundering voice of God. There were certainly no head nodders in the congregation at Sinai that day. But there is an infinitely greater shaking coming, says the author of Hebrews, an eschatological cosmic shaking of the whole universe. And it too will be triggered by God's word. Here the writer has quoted God's promise from Haggai 2, 6. Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. That which cannot be shaken, which is not of human manufacture, is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to which you belong. Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably and reverence with reverence and godly fear. Grace is the vehicle by which we may serve God in a manner pleasing and acceptable to him in a kingdom that is unshakable and immovable. I don't have time to read it. Calvin has a wonderful, uh, some wonderful commentary uh, on this passage. Uh, so if you want to look that up or ask me about it, I'm happy to send it to you. We are to do this with reverence, devoutly, circumspectly and in no way flippantly. In fact, we do this still with a godly fear in confidence. The reason is simple. The God we are serving is a consuming fire. He, ex- he extends intimacy and grace 
but he also enacts judgment and fire for that which does not please him. This is, there is an interesting tension in the Christian faith. On the one hand, we enjoy the intimacy of father and child as spoken of in Jeremiah 31, for example, and uh, Hosea 2, other passages in Scripture. But on the other hand, we always live in this deep respect for the moral order God has created and in the design he has for each of our lives. We do not treat that design lightly, but constantly search for it. We ask for it and we pursue it. So to those who are obedient to this good news, uh, this is good news to those who are obedient. And the writer means for it to be a powerful encouragement to this beleaguered little church to which he writes. On the other hand, to those who are ignoring God's word, who are drifting further away, who are blatantly rejecting God, this uh, was a disquieting and still is a disquieting revelation and a challenge to repentance and obedience. But to all, including us, there is a mighty call here to obey God's word because it is both effectual and final. No Israelite who disobeyed God's earthly word survived the desert. And how much more will be the case with those who disobey the heavenly word through Christ? God's word is effectual. It accomplishes what it sets out to do and it never fails. And God's word is final. It started the universe and it will stop it. So the command to all of us pilgrims on the road to Zion comes with great force. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. He who speaks at creation and from Mount Sinai, from Mount Calvary, and finally from Mount Zion. Are you refusing God? Are you ignoring his word? Are you resisting his call? Are you asleep in the light? Wake up, dear Christian, if that's you. He is speaking to you now. Do not be fooled. His word is effectual and it is final. And finally, after obedience, the other great call to action that comes to us in this passage is worship. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for God is a consuming fire. Note our text well. It says that our God is, not was, a consuming fire. God remains a consuming fire, and that acceptable worship takes place when there is authentic reverence and awe. We understand what it cost for our salvation. This is God's word to us. One has to love Annie Dillard's admonition to the average churchgoer when she quips, Does anyone have the foggiest idea of the power we so blithely invoke in worship? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Reverent worship is not child's play. It is a serious and joyful business. The earth quakes at the word of God. The author of Hebrews tells us that we right now in worship approach the God whose presence at Mount Sinai is ablaze and it puts fear into the hearts of the onlookers. They would not approach it, but ask Moses to serve as their mediator, to walk through the fire on their behalf. 
As Christians, we embrace truths that often come in these tension-filled pairs, these dialectical pairs at, at work with one another. And the truth is found in that tension. Does God sovereignly elect and direct, or do we exercise moral responsibility in our choices before Him? Yes. Since your baptism, are you a saint or a sinner? Yes. Is the kingdom of God already something we can participate in now? Or is it something that we await? Yes. Are we on a pilgrimage to Mount Zion, as the songs of ascent in Psalms 120 to 134 teach us? Or have we already approached Mount Zion with confidence under the mediation of Christ as our great high priest, as the author of Hebrews tells us? Yes. When we come to worship, we must keep both mountains in view. The approachable Zion with its consuming love and the unapproachable Sinai with its consuming fire. And then we come in reverent boldness. Everything depends on how we see God. This will inform all of our life. Our worship, our sense of mission and evangelism, our stewardship, our marriage, our family life, our affirmation and delight in the the goodness of the created order, our uh, relationships in general, our sexual ethics, everything, everything hinges on how we understand God. So we, as members of an unshakable kingdom of Christ today, are meant to worship with thankful hearts. That is our only appropriate response. Our pulses should race with thanksgiving because of this. With the Apostle Paul, we can exclaim, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 2 Corinthians 9. Whatever we do or wherever we go, we must always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians Ephesians 5.20. The twin mountains of our spiritual life demand two things as we march to Zion, obedience and worship. Let us obey his word, for it is effectual. It never fails, and it is final. It will shake the whole universe. Let us worship him with our lives in reverence and awe and thanksgiving. This is our only reasonable response. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose word thunders from Mount Sinai and beckons from Mount Zion, we thank you that you have spoken to us in these last days through your son, Jesus, our great high priest and shepherd of the sheep, whom you have appointed heir of all things. Through him, we have been made alive to you. May we not neglect such a great salvation. May we not be dull of hearing as the author of Hebrews warns his readers, but may we be all ears for your word of life, living it out in joyous obedience and festal worship. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So the comparison of Sinai and Zion and its associated warning in our text today is offered by the author of Hebrews as the theological basis for the exhortation given in the preceding paragraph of chapter 12 uh, that, that we find in chapter 12, just before the sermon text. He says this, Therefore, Strengthen the hands which hang down. Some translations say something like, lift your drooping hands and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And then he goes on to give the reasons why they should do this, which is the sermon today. So the image here is one of weariness 
weariness brought on by the trials of life. This isn't some kind of uh, academic speculation or theologizing in the abstract. This is incredibly concrete for the experience of Christians. There's a weariness that endangers faith in the promises of God. You know it, and I know it, because we live in this world. Are you weary? Are you carrying a heavy load today? Is your, weight, is your faith waning because of that? Do not be dull of hearing. Listen. Obey. Respond in worship. The admonition here is really oriented to the future grace of God. This is very interesting. Many Christians seem content to live with their lives oriented to the past. Past expressions of God's grace that happened before, such as a conversion experience, as wonderful as that is. A time during which perhaps God manifested himself unusually through an answered prayer. A time of special spiritual vitality in your life. Perhaps a time when your church community seemed to be thriving spiritually in the proverbial good old days. But God's workings of grace and our need for faith must not merely be relegated to these past experiences. We must hear God now, and we need hope for the future, not for the past. Hope that finds energy and faith, and it accesses the grace of God for the needs of tomorrow. So we have to have this holistic interaction with the grace of God. One that rejoices in these past experiences and thanks God for them. But also one that interfaces with the Lord at the present time and also trusts Him in the future. John Piper comments on this interaction of God's past and future grace in the Christian life. Listen to what he says. Quote, There is a sense in which gratitude and faith are interwoven joys that strengthen each other. As gratitude joyfully revels in the benefits of past grace, so faith joyfully relies on the benefits of future grace. Therefore, when gratitude for God's past is strong, the message is sent that God is supremely trustworthy in the future because of what he has done in the past. In this way, faith is strengthened by a lively gratitude for God's past trustworthiness. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing in his letter. On the other hand, says Piper, when faith in God's future grace is strong, what happens? The message is sent that this kind of God makes no mistakes so that everything he has done in the past is part of a good plan and can be remembered with gratitude. In this way, gratitude is strengthened by a lively faith in God's future grace. You see the reciprocity of these two things, gratitude and faith. The person who claims an experience of past grace but senses no need for present interaction with the Lord or for future grace at the coming of Christ is in danger of living outside the bounds of biblical faith. Faith in the grace of God means that I embrace Christ in all of his biblical roles as high priest and sacrifice for my sins, as intercessor, as king, as the Lord of the universe, who in the future will shake the heavens and the earth. 
I can't be thankful simply for what God has done in the past. I need to be thankful for what He's going to do in the future. This is why the author of Hebrews can follow the portrait of this new covenant relationship with the harsh warning. His warning reminds us that biblical grace links all of the workings of God in history into a single continuum. And it's in that continuum that we live. Those who grasp the gravity of God's future judgment of the world, the judgment that is to come, living their lives in light of God's will and trusting God's grace for that moment, find that God's grace is working its way back into the present time. Hope in that grace for for the future has a powerful transforming effect on the present. This is the inbreaking, the eruption of God's kingdom into time from eternity. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann has noted that Christian theologizing about the end of the world remains a sterile project unless that future event is allowed to exert an impact on present thought and action. This is the this is the word we need. This is true Christian hope concerning the coming of Christ, a hope that not only comforts concerning the future, but also transforms the present. If one truly grasps the reality of biblical eschatology, that heaven breaks into earth and will one day consummate that inbreaking, it changes everything. How I think and live will be changed in light of this transforming vision. That knowledge of the coming shaking of the world, the end, can cause me to evaluate in what I am investing my life right now. So the Christian lives now in light of the unseen then, when Christ will appear. The Christian lives for that which will be stable eternally. And so this table of thanksgiving is set before us again today, a table of reconciliation, a table of friendship between the Lord of the universe and his purchased bride, you, me. It is the axis of heaven and earth where we here and now commune with Christ who is seated in the heavenlies, making intercession for us. Let us now eat and drink as those who understand the heavenly realities that are available to us right now in Christ and who remember our proper response of thanksgiving for what we have received. Amen. God Almighty, who is a God like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Who in the heavens can be compared to you? O Lord of hosts, who is a strong Lord like you? Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, and there are no works like your works, for you are great and do wondrous things. You are God alone. What wonders you have wrought in the mysteries of the gospel. O Lamb of God, you have delivered us from the wrath to come. You have made our peace in the blood of your cross. We are now victors because of what Christ has done. And now may we go forth and live as those who have been redeemed for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. Now receive this benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. To God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.